Hi, this is Cabernet and True Crime, and I'm your host, Jana. Uh, this is the place where good wine and true crime come together, and a little bit of housekeeping. I really did fix the intro, but I'm leaving it out of this episode, so you'll see it next week or hear it next week. It's uh, new, so that's exciting. Um, as always, you know the drill. Follow me on Instagram at Cabernet and True Crime. I post something every day, whether it's something informative or goofy or a weird crime or a behind the scenes, you know, you know what it is. Uh, I also use that to communicate with people. So if you ever want to talk or request a case to be covered or even talk about your dog, that's the best place to do it. You know the drill. So let's get right into this. I've got quite a special episode for you this week, one that has honestly been in the works for quite a while, and this week we're discussing the mysterious death of David Elmquist. I'm very excited to talk about this today because it's a very big deal. There are major factors at play, and the more that people hear this story, the more we can help David's family get closure. So I've actually been working with David's family, who are behind the Defenders of David Instagram page. If you'd like to support them directly, please follow their social media accounts, sign the petition that's currently ongoing, and if you can, donate to their fundraiser that actually started on Monday. Um, You'll hear more about why I think you should do these things in a minute. Uh, All the information I'm going to present to you comes from the Defenders of David's Instagram, truthfordavid.com, and incident reports and crime scene photos that I have received from David's family. Any supplementary information I have gotten from regular Google searches. And I am honored to be part of this experience and join the group of people who are helping give David a voice in his afterlife. I've thought a lot about how to dive into this story, about what, like, you know, where made the most sense, and after much deliberation, I think the most logical answer is to start on the night of February 8th, 2018. On this night, according to police, quote, A male set himself and his apartment on fire. The male was transported to the hospital where he passed away from his injuries. The male in question was David Scott Elmquist, who supposedly completed suicide by self-immolation a little over two weeks before his 25th birthday. That evening, around 11 p.m., police responded to the 911 call that there was a fire going on in the Plymouth, Minnesota apartment complex where David and his wife, whom I'm choosing to call E, lived together. Police met E in the parking lot of the complex, uh, not immediately going to the apartment, which is where, of course, there was a fire, which is the first thing about this that I found very interesting. According to the statements I've seen, E told police that, quote, he had knives and he might be dangerous, which is supplemented by an incident report filed on that evening where it was stated that officers learned that David may still possess knives in the apartment. When police made it into the complex, the hallway where the apartment was located was filled with smoke. The apartment across the hallway was empty, and to my understanding, the floor had been cleared because, you know, the fire, Uh, and police used the empty apartment for officer safety and to have a better tactical position. It said that there were numerous attempts to verbally contact David. Eventually, the door to David and E's apartment was wedged open where the smoke was rolling out, but no one exited the residence. From the doorway, it could be seen that there was an item, uh, some incident reports call it a towel, but it was actually an oven mitt, that was sitting on the stovetop and burning, creating a great deal of smoke. An officer used an eight-foot-long hook to attempt to reach the oven mitt, and after the second try, depending on reports, was able to get it off the stove. During that same time, officers had gone outside the apartment and shot out the sliding glass doors on the patio. 
there was an attempt to shoot out a bedroom window, except that window had already been opened and therefore only the screen was shot through. This was an attempt to try to clear smoke out of the apartment, which we'll get to later. While all this was happening, David emerged from the smoky hallway and collapsed at the threshold of the apartment. He had walked from the back of the apartment near the bedrooms and made it almost completely out, but laid down on his stomach. He was naked and his bodily had been, body had been covered in fresh blisters. Large chunks of skin had fallen off his body and his feet were bleeding. He was conscious but had labored breathing. He was put on a soft cot to be transported to the ambulance, and while he attempted to speak to the officers, was unable to. David was rushed to the hospital, where he died a few hours later from his injuries. For the time being... We'll talk a little bit more about the police reports from the evening before moving on because these police reports and ultimately how police viewed David during this time, I feel are critical to the why this turned into a horror story with no happy ending. For now, let's start with my problems with the long rescue time. Why did the police and fire department stand outside apartment 352 for 39 agonizing and possibly life-saving minutes simply calling David's name and hoping for the best? Well, part of this is based on the story uh, police were told initially. At some point, and it's unclear to me honestly, police were told that the fire had been started intentionally, that the male had pushed his wife out into the hall and set the apartment on fire, and that David had just gotten released from a hospital for mental health issues. And I apologize for the super crude summarization, but I've read like 16 separate incident reports from this evening, and I'm trying to get the most information out in the most concise way possible. So that that story is really what is... I guess the hive mind mentality of what I can see happened that evening. Based off these reports, I can safely assume that police knew that there had been a man, David Elmquist, in the apartment, whom allegedly had poured some type of flammable liquid on himself and then set himself on fire. This man also allegedly has a mental health condition, which we will get into a little bit later. He allegedly, and literally according to one source, has a knife in the apartment. However, And we're going to do a sidebar here. Uh, If you're going to go with the fact that he willingly set himself on fire or hell, knowing that he was himself on fire either way, do you genuinely think that that man is going to have the volition to stab someone? And especially after a considerable, considerable amount of time later, he's going to be a huge threat to a firefighter, a team of ones at that. I mean, I'm being completely candid here for a second, and if you've ever seen somebody in that situation, I'm sure, even if it was intentional or not intentional or whatever, their last concern is stabbing someone, but we'll move on. We're going to get back to the facts. That just, that whole, that that really upsets me. And also, I'm not trying to be redundant, I'm trying to paint a picture here. There's just several parts missing. So if you hear me repeating myself, it's to make a point, and we're going to keep coming back to the same, so we're going to keep coming back to different pieces and parts that just don't add up. So if it sounds like I'm repeating myself, I promise that I'm not, and there's there's a reason for it when we get to the end of this. So I digress. Police reports stated that, Based on information on hand and conditions of heavy smoke, it was not safe for either fire nor police to make entry into the residence. And I've got multiple comments on this, and I'm not trying to be snarky. These are just genuine questions that I'm posing to the world. One, isn't that the job of a firefighter? Two, after looking at crime scene photos, 
The only fire damage to the apartment is in the kitchen, which police even state that the considerable amount of smoke they saw was coming from the oven mitt on the stove. So the fire wasn't so that, it wasn't that bad, which, spoiler alert, the fire had already been extinguished by the time the police arrived. So their argument of this horrible, awful fire going on and their inadequacies to go inside is completely moot because the fire was already put out by the time they got there. And three... After these two factors are eliminated, meaning the door was open, the apartment was airing out, and police verbally called out to David, those police were shocked when a man, who allegedly just lit himself on fire, didn't respond or exit the apartment. In fact, police told the fireman, firemen to stand down and not go inside and rescue David. So, instead of helping him... They stood outside that apartment, calling his name for 39 minutes, until David was able to muster up whatever energy he had left and walk almost completely out of the apartment on his own after being burned over 90% of his body, mostly blind and struggling to breathe. Alright, so that covers the police reports, what allegedly happened, and why we're here. I hope we're all up to speed now. David's parents simply want justice for their son. They want the Minnesota Attorney General to appoint an independent prosecutor to thoroughly investigate the death of their son. David's father had more or less solely been doing the legwork thus far, calling incident re- collecting incident reports and evidence, poring over details and documentation, looking at his own son's autopsy photos, consulting a forensic investigator, and hiring his own independent fire investigator, which is just literally the tip of the iceberg. I stumbled across the Defenders of David Instagram page in January of this year, and based off of what I've already shared with you and the information I'm about to share, I just needed to help in any way that I could. It took some time for me to compile all the necessary information, but I'm ready to lock and load, guys. From here, I'd like to dig one level deeper, and let's pick up from January 2018, because um, I want to flash back and work our way up to the night of the incident, because the days and weeks leading up to David's death are crucial in telling our story. So in January of 2018, um, we have multiple points of view of this time frame, and we can actually piece together kind of a factual series of events. So on January 12th, Scott and his wife noticed that David was acting strangely, so they went to the apartment to figure out what was going on. They gave uh, David a drug test, but from... uh, David wasn't on any drugs. Marijuana was suspected, but even in the toxicology report, and at this time, time, uh, there was no pot in David's system at all. So that day, David was experiencing delusions, extreme paranoia, and hallucinations. And according to the Elmquists, their son ended up naked on his hands and knees on the living room floor. And in this story, E kneels down in front of him and begins to slap David aggressively across the face, saying it had worked before. For reference in this story, David was a six-foot-tall, 190-pound former oil rig worker, where his wife was roughly five feet tall and petite in stature. Scott, David's father, opened up about this incident in his website for David, stating that he shared it so people could possibly understand how vulnerable David was on the night that he died. On the website as well, I feel that Scott worded this next statement very eloquently, so I'll choose to quote it here for you. David was experiencing psychosis. Psychosis is a symptom, not an illness. 
It is actually quite common. Every year, 100,000 teens and young adults will experience their first psychotic episode. Psychosis is a condition that affects the way your brain processes information. It causes you to lose touch with reality. You might see, hear, or believe things that aren't real. David, never having been been diagnosed with or struggling with any mental health issues in the past, found himself in a mental hospital in a deep state of psychosis. This continued on for a while, although I don't think it was understood what was happening at the time, and on January 18th, according to E, David was sent home from work for acting weird. His coworker said that he was scatterbrained, and on that day, Scott had come over and visited with with David for a while. E said that she had gone to bed and wasn't sure what the two men had talked about. On January 19th, David insisted that he drive E to work, although he didn't, and that day E contacts David's place of employment to get more information on what had happened. That night, David's parents came over. David was making religious statements, acting odd, and he was even his parents thought something was wrong, so David was taken to the ER, as he was in a state of psychosis and having delusions. The ER lab did work, uh, did lab work, and decided that David should be put on a 72-hour hold. He was transferred from Maple Grove Hospital to Fairview Riverside. According to E's story, David struggled with taking his medication at first, but after she and his family discussed the importance, he he turned around and began regularly taking his pills. Um, Interesting to note that on the night that David died, he had no medication in his system. David spent 10 days in the hospital, and his mental health improved, and he was discharged on January 30th, 2018 with a treatment plan, a mood stabilizing medication, and a plan for what to do if he should ever experience any psychosis again. In fact, when David was discharged, the paperwork from the doctor stated, therefore, based on all available evidence, including the factors cited above, David Elmquist does not appear to be at imminent risk for self-harm and is appropriate for outpatient level of care. The patient's symptoms of disorganization and psychosis improved. At the time of discharge, David Elmquist was determined to not be a danger to himself or to others. E directly supported this statement um, and supported him coming home because he wasn't dangerous in the first incident and he was just, quote, delusional about things that weren't happening. While David was in psychosis, he was never violent or suicidal, as documented in his mental health records. Everyone responds differently to psychosis, and some people get angry, combative, and aggressive, but David was quite the opposite. He would strip naked, kneel on the ground, read the Bible, and talk about how the world is evil, which uh, Scott alluded to it being based on his strict conservative uh, Christian upbringing. Um, So this talk wasn't completely out of the ordinary, but given everything else that was going on, it was pretty concerning. As documented in his mental health records, numerous times, David denied any suicidal or homicidal thoughts. He was merely confused, paranoid, and his thought process was disorganized. Upon being admitted to the hospital, the doctor asked David what David's chief complaint was, and his response was, I'm not sure. Sometimes you just have to take some time to figure out what is real and what is not. David's medical records state similar sentiments. He had He had had no psychiatric history, he had smoked pot and drank occasionally, he admitted to trying stimulants, and had some concerns about being sometimes lackadaisical with respirator work in the use, sorry, lackadaisical with respirator use at the workplace. In my opinion, these are all pretty regular things for a 24-year-old, honestly. Uh, David's final diagnosis while leaving the hospital was schizophrenia unspecified. 
a term where symptoms can cause significant distress in someone's life, but doesn't meet the criteria for schizophrenia spectrum or psychotic disorders. Therefore, despite the autopsy reports and what police wanted to believe, David was never, ever diagnosed as schizophrenic. And here, I fully agree with another public statement that David's family has released. To say that a man who had never experienced any mental health-related issues in his entire life was, quote, very mentally ill just because he spent one week in a hospital due to one episode of psychosis is not fair to David. If you want to help end the stigma, then this quick labeling of people as crazy needs to stop. No wonder people are afraid to get help for mental conditions. But I ask you, even if a person has schizophrenia, are they not allowed to be treated with the same dignity, respect, and value of life that one without a mental condition is? One mental health diagnosis does not define them. David was a young man who smoked weed recreationally, drank heavy at times, and even admitted to his dad of doing cocaine once. When David was in the hospital, he told his dad that he needed to change his ways and turn from the life he had been living. In David's own words, he wanted to move back into his parents' home so he could continue to detox and get back to work in North Dakota as soon as he was able. So, fun fact, David had worked for three years at an oil rig in North Dakota. Uh, David wasn't perfect, and we are not hiding or denying the fact that he didn't always make the best life choices. He was the life of the party, a God-fearing, people-loving, hard worker who was loved by many. He was still growing up, learning, and figuring out who he was. And that bit, to me, speaks volumes. Because, and this is a little sidebar, but it doesn't seem like David's family, the Elmquists, are trying to make David seem like he was this perfect individual. We're all human. We're not perfect. And I think this is really where I decided that I needed to help them. Because it's not that they've put David on this pedestal. It's not that they're pretending like he was this perfect human who could never mess up and make mistakes. But it's still not fair that this has gone the way it has. So that's just my little two cents on that statement. On February 7th, David had his first appointment with a therapist, which in my opinion may be sparking the next sequence of events, sequence of events, although I do not know what was discussed. But earlier in the day on February 8th, 2018, David had gone to his parents' house to discuss his marriage. He had talked about how the marriage was toxic, his wife was manipulative, and that he wanted a divorce. In fact, he told his parents that he planned to move out the apartment the next day. David's mother asked him, what would happen if you went home to talk to your wife about this? To which David chillingly responded, she'd go ballistic. Eight hours later, David was dead. I want to preface the rest of this podcast with saying, this is not a witch hunt about um, against David's wife. The point of all of this, the petitions, the podcasts, the social media accounts, is to get answers. There is information out there that doesn't add up, and in this case, this is all of the nitty-gritty details, are being shared publicly to get answers. All that David's family, as well as the people who are following the developments on this case, care about is the truth. If David did this, make it make sense. Meaning, Yes, if David actually completed suicide by setting himself on fire, that's something to be handled emotionally, and that's something that you'd have to process. But the simple fact of the matter is the clues and the evidence along the way don't singularly point to that. What are the pieces that we are missing? David and E had been married for 11 months. They had dated for a long time and even met each other around 8 or 9 years old as children. 
During their relationship, David spent three years living in North Dakota while he worked on an oil rig. Before the hospitalization in January, East said that she saw no obvious signs of mental illness or mental instability in David, a point that she, as well as the Elmquists, can agree on. The night of the incident, E got home around 4.30 and he got home around 5. And when asked if E thought he had smoked marijuana at all, she said she wasn't sure. But like I said, we know from the toxicology reports that David didn't. Later that evening, E was doing homework while David cooked dinner and then he walked the dog. E said that she got into bed around 10 p.m. with David and they watched the news. 20 to 30 minutes later, she said that she was tired and ready to go to bed. David asked if he could keep the TV on, and she said it was fine, but to turn the volume down. She said he sat up and got closer to the TV, but that was an odd because maybe he was trying to listen closer. It wasn't a weird thing. According to E's story, she must have dozed off because right around 11 p.m., she said that David came into the room and told her that she needed to get up and go to her parents' house. He was naked at the time. E's account of this part varies, but the general synopsis states that she heard splashing noises coming from the kitchen, and she saw David dumping some unknown liquid on himself, and he was standing near the stove, and the light was on, indicating that a burner was hot. E said that she attempted to grab the sink sprayer from the kitchen sink to wash the unknown liquid off David, but he pushed her away and got oil all over her arms and hair, which she left the situation to go to the bathroom and wash the oil off. When she came back to the kitchen, allegedly, David had poured more oil on himself at the time and had a lighter. She said that she attempted to get the lighter away from him but was not successful, so she grabbed her phone, a set of car keys, the family dog, and was shoved out of the apartment. And in her story, David locked her out. And you know how the rest of this story goes. And weirdly enough, in February of this year, David's father was served papers for a restraining order that E had tried to file against him for an event that happened on February 10th, 2018, just one day after David had passed away. David's parents had gone over to E's parents' house to simply ask her for clarity on what had happened since they obviously weren't there the night that David had passed away. Ultimately, there was no merit for the petition, and it was subsequently dismissed. One note, though, is that these statements, and others, that she is presenting, were made under oath in the penalty of perjury. So that's interesting. All right, so in an attempt to get the story out with too much confusion, and I hope I'm doing okay, I saved all, while most of the inconsistencies noted within this case and questions that I have for last. So I hope the general story, well, the story is best as I can tell it because there's so many blank spaces in here about what actually happened. So I I hope these, this is why it needs to be looked into, right? So we're going to go into all the inconsistencies, and I hope that you see why this needs more attention. So inconsistency number one is David's burn patterns. So David's family brings this up on their blog as well as on their Instagram, and there is a crudely done drawing of a male torso with severe damage to the right side of the body, but not so much on the left. In self-immolation cases, when somebody lights himself on fire, the burn pattern should remain pretty consistent throughout the head and torso region. Also, and with this, this is one of the jarring pictures that got me interested in the case to begin with, there's two perfectly symmetrical bands on David's wrists that are not burned at all. 
Neither one of these points are mentioned in David's autopsy reports. Scott was the one who found them. The inconsistencies of the burn pattern and the unburned wrists, in my opinion, are not consistent with someone pouring oil all over their body and igniting themselves. Because how does someone spare only the inside of both their wrists from the accelerant and flames, as well as having one uh, half of their body far more badly burned than the other? When Scott brought this information to the medical examiner, who, remember, failed to comment on these areas in the first place, uh, the medical examiner said he must have been wearing gloves, which we know isn't true. Inconsistency number two, David was not suicidal. David had, from what I've perceived, a plan ahead of him. He was in therapy, he was trying new medication, he was hopeful for the next chapters, and actually the night of February 8th, David and his dad were texting at around 10 p.m. David was talking about making plans to call a doctor the next day. He was also planning on leaving his wife and moving out the next day. An hour later, he completes suicide in the most rare and painful way possible. Also, just to note, a police report mentioned the male suffers from depression and has attempted to commit suicide in the past. Who told the police this information and why did they think that? Inconsistency number three, E's story and her behavior that evening. The whole thing just seems odd. Um, so, I mean, just put, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but put yourself in her shoes. Your husband, wife, dad, loved one, whoever wakes you up and starts pouring oil all over themselves with what you instinctively believe is the intention to set themselves on fire. In the middle of the confrontation, you go wash the oil off in the bathroom that that bit is just so peculiar to me and you make sure you have your phone the dog the car keys before getting pushed out of the apartment and then you claim that the door is locked but the door is not locked walk down the hallway asking for help and then just stand in the parking lot outside and i read somewhere it wasn't even e who called 911 first a neighbor called 911 and then e called 33 seconds later Another interesting thing to note is Scott let the police know that they that David had planned on leaving um, E prior to his death, which they responded. E said that David never discussed this with her. And gee, I wonder why. Inconsistency number four. The lighter never existed. So remember that I said when E came out of the bathroom from cleaning herself off, she said that David had a lighter and she attempted to get it away from him. No lighter was ever found. The apartment and kitchen especially weren't that large. When E was questioned by Scott about the lighter, she said, my mom found it on the floor over by the kitchen table. She picked it up and put it by the stove. Um, after looking at the photos of the apartment taken by police, I can confirm there was no lighter. And with that being said, how did David set himself on fire then? Inconsistency number five, the knife. So police found a knife in the apartment. After all this hoopla about David having knives and, you know, they couldn't save him because he could be dangerous, that whole thing. So the knife they found, there was no flesh, no debris or bodily fluids on the knife that was found, which is a fact corroborated by a police report. And given the conditions of David's hands and how badly they were burned, there's no way he had ever held on to that knife. From the pictures, even, the knife block is covered in a good amount of soot, but you can distinctly tell that this knife was in the knife block at the time of the fire based off the soot patterns. The biggest kicker here, 
In the final incident report provided by police, they had the absolute gall to mention the knife, the lack of blood, everything, and said, and this is a a direct quote, and so I want to scream, they said, we believe it played no role in the events of this night. Okay. Uh, So, one of the quotes from a different uh, incident report states, The male did not have access to firearms, but likely possessed knives. By that argument, doesn't everyone have a set of kitchen knives? Do police and firemen actively not rescue anyone in case they might own a set of knives? Like, okay, he might have had knives. Cool. I mean, the whole whole knife thing, it's, it's so odd. I'm just not going to say anything else about it. I'm sure you can form your own opinion on that. Inconsistency number six. The door to the apartment was never locked. E states multiple times that David pushed her out of the apartment and locked the door. Two points. One, if E was forcibly removed from the apartment, literally shoved out as she states, how did she have time to grab her phone, the dog, a set of keys, etc., and then get shoved out? And two, Nearly every police incident report says the door was unlocked. Even the maintenance man who put the fire out said the door was unlocked when he got to the apartment. So, that's a thing. Uh, Number seven, and this is my own point, uh, inconsistency number seven is the intensity of the fire. One police report, which this I thought was quite interesting, right? So the fire in the apartment was so raging, so dangerous, too dangerous for anyone to help, right? Well, one report... And these are direct snippets. A quote says, It did not appear there was an active fire inside, but a smoldering one. So, a maintenance man put the fire out before any of these police could. So, (laughs) I mean, do with that information what you will. Uh, And lastly, inconsistency number eight. Officers waited outside David's apartment for 30 minutes while he was inside gravely injured. There's a direct, a direct quote from police which says, When officers arrived on scene, there was no active fire inside the apartment, but there was smoke. Plymouth, po- Plymouth police didn't have training on how to enter a smoke-filled, smoke-filled building, nor did they carry proper protective gear to allow them to do so. Due to the fact that David had purposefully lit the fire and was clearly not acting rationally, it would not have been prudent or safe to allow them to enter the building. So... Police themselves not being trained or having the gear is, you know, whatever, I'll play along. But by the time the firefighters arrive, and arguably by the time police arrived, if David had really set himself on fire, how big of a threat could he have been? Obviously, he wasn't scary enough or threatening enough for a mere maintenance man who attempted to extinguish the entire fire on his own. Like, obviously, he wasn't that scary. I mean, he was a man who was burned over 90% of his body. How how threatening is that person? And there's a narrative here from what I could tell that all the policemen and firemen and just the whole entire county police department believe that, quote, David could have come out of the apartment earlier, but he chose not to. To which, like, I shouldn't even have to explain why that's ridiculous. Like, I I am not going to explain why that's a ridiculous statement, but I will add that most people who have burns this severe die within 10 to 15 minutes. David was in the apartment for 39 minutes, sitting on a love seat, waiting for help, which never came. David had to save himself. 
The fire department said, quote, everything looked like a suicide. And I would highly disagree. I don't know the answers to these questions, and I certainly don't presume to know what happened. But the Elmquist family needs closure instead of these runaround stories. If there are mistakes made, they need to be admitted and answered for. If there were lies, we need to know the truth. As of yesterday, the Minnesota Attorney General's office has indicated that they will not be helpful in getting David's story another look, and that's where we come in. If you want to help, I recommend you hop on Instagram and look up Defenders of David. There you can find links, more of the backstory, share everything, and sign the petition. Because they can't ignore us forever.